the Jodcast. Yes, Josh, that was in fact a moon. Call yourself an astronomer. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasani, Samuel Lesk, Crispin Agar, Tian Bezoidenhout, Michael Wright, Fiona Porter and Adam Averson. The Jodcast, April 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Crispin and joining me in the studio today are Tian and Mike. Hi everyone, I'm Tian Bezoidenhout. I'm a PhD student here doing my PhD on looking for pulsars and fast radio transients using the Meerkat telescope in South Africa. Uh, and this is my first time behind the mic. I've been an editor before and I've been a producer of the show. But I was getting tired of hearing my name mangled in the credits, so I thought I'd come on and set the record straight. <laughs> Jolly good. In the show this time, Adam Avison interviews Matt Smith about dusty star formation in nearby galaxies, and Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the April night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Fiona Porter with this month's news. This month in the news, the asteroids we're visiting the one that quietly visited us, and a new method of Martian exploration. First, some updates on exploration of near-Earth asteroids with OSIRIS-REx and Hayabusa 2. These are two asteroid-studying missions that each aim to investigate and return samples from a particular near-Earth object. Both of them reached their target asteroids within the last year and have now returned some preliminary information. Hayabusa 2 is a mission run by JAXA, the Japanese space agency, and follows the success of Hayabusa, which returned with asteroid samples in 2010. It's studying asteroid Ryugu, which is a rare CG-type asteroid. Having rendezvoused in June of last year, it's now launched two rovers to explore the surface. Initial findings suggest that the one-kilometre diameter Ryugu broke off from a much larger asteroid. Its density is so low that rather than solid rock, it may be comprised of rubble that collects together after an impact. It also shows signs that it once carried water, but that it was somehow burned off its parent asteroid. As it's belief that asteroids are the source of Earth's water, its absence on Ryugu was unexpected, and raises interesting questions about the possible mechanisms behind its dehydration. Once we have rock samples from Ryugu, we'll know more about the time frame since it split off from its parent, and possibly even identify that parent from currently known asteroids, but we'll have to wait for a while. Hayabusa 2 is not expected to return to Earth until December 2020. OSIRIS-REx is a NASA mission investigating asteroid Bennu and will be the first American mission to bring back an asteroid sample if it succeeds. Bennu shares a few characteristics with Ryugu, it falls under another uncommon class of asteroid, and it seems it might also be comprised of collected rubble, although it's smaller at a diameter of about 500 metres. However, it has one unusual feature it's intermittently ejecting small rocks into space, with 11 events happening throughout January and February. This makes it an active asteroid, which are rare. Only a few dozen are known amongst the thousands of asteroids identified. With OSIRIS-REx in orbit, we'll be able to examine this process closer than ever before, and maybe even determine what's causing it. In the meanwhile, OSIRIS-REx will be spending its time searching for a site that it can collect surface samples from in summer 2020. Researchers believe that the mission can be safely completed despite the occasional rock ejections, and we can expect to see it return to Earth in 2023. Now to an asteroid a little closer to home. Our listeners might remember the incredible dashcam footage of a meteor strike over the Chelyabinsk region in Russia in 2013. 
but NASA has recently reported that another event like this occurred just before Christmas last year, unrecognised until now. A near-Earth asteroid, estimated to have been a few metres in diameter, exploded over the Bering Sea on the 18th of December 2018. It went unnoticed at the time as it entered the atmosphere over an uninhabited region, while the Chelyabinsk meteor caused damage in multiple cities and was widely observed and reported on. The fireball produced by this asteroid can retrospectively be spotted in several images from the Japanese Himawari satellite and was the second largest fireball observed in the last 30 years. An asteroid of this kind doesn't pose much of a threat to humanity. It's estimated that this one released about 40% of the energy of the Chelyabinsk meteor, which itself produced relatively minor damage, largely breaking glass in buildings, and few serious injuries. However, it does highlight the need to be able to track asteroids and their movements so that we can be forewarned if an impact will affect a populated area. NASA are currently working to map all near-Earth asteroids over 140 metres in diameter, and have had some success at predicting the arrival of asteroids a few metres across, but it's predicted that it'll take another 30 years before they reach their aim of mapping 90% of objects this size. In the meanwhile, while nobody may have seen the fireball from the ground, they might have glimpsed it from the air. The fireball appeared in an area close to some commercial plane flight paths, and researchers have been investigating to see if any flights reported seeing it. If anyone did spot it, it'd make a useful account of the event, on top of being a very exciting flight. On the subject of flight, here's a first. Along with the Mars 2020 rover, NASA will be sending a helicopter to Mars in 2021. As far as helicopters go, it'll be a small one, weighing under 2 kilograms and the size of a softball, according to design reports. But its blades will rotate at around 3,000 RPM, 10 times faster than a terrestrial helicopter. This is necessary as the Martian atmosphere is far thinner than Earth's and flight at the surface there will be equivalent to flying at over 30 kilometres in the air here. No small feat given that the highest a helicopter has reached on Earth was around 12 kilometres. This helicopter is considered a high-risk project as despite NASA's best efforts it may not be capable of flight on Mars, but if it succeeds it'll be a high reward. Providing the ability to scout ahead for rovers, or to investigate areas that can't be reached by ground-based vehicles, would increase our capability to explore the Martian surface. For now, though, it's being sent largely as a test of the technology. If it doesn't succeed, the rest of the mission can continue as intended, and if it does, we can gain insight into what's needed to allow for future flying craft to work to their full potential. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now Adam Averson interviews Matt Smith about dusty star formation in nearby galaxies. Hi, I'm Adam Everson and I'm here talking to today's colloquium speaker, Matt Smith from the University of Cardiff. Hello, Matt. Hi, Adam. So Matt is here to talk to us about dust in nearby galaxies, specifically with Herschel and the Scuba 2 telescopes. So would you like to tell us about your research? I primarily look at dust. So this is not dust that you get around your house, but interstellar dust. So it's small particles, and you think of it more like smoke. So it kind of absorbs radiation and hides light in the optical and then gives it out as heat in the infrared. It's quite cold, so it's normally about 20-odd Kelvin. So we have to look at very long wavelengths to be able to see it. And dust is quite a good tracer of the total interstellar medium or the amount of gas and other elements between stars. 
and this is all the raw fuel that's going to form stars in the future. I look at a nearby galaxies because we get a really good view and unlike the Milky Way where we can only look at kind of the stars in our local neighborhood and things get very confused because we're within the galaxy by looking at other galaxies we can look at the entire picture and see how large-scale factors affect this small-scale star formation. When we say nearby galaxies, how nearby are these guys? So I, I go everything from Andromeda, which is the closest Milky Way-like galaxy to us. That is 785 kiloparsecs away. But then um, we look at all the way the Virgo cluster. That's actually light we're receiving back when the dinosaurs were around. And that's about 60 megaparsecs away. And so which kind of instruments do you use to, to observe? Mainly, most of my work has revolved around Herschel, which launched just at the beginning of my PhD. And this was a European Space Agency satellite that had the largest mirror in space, three and a half metres, and that could observe this full far infrared wavelength range from 60 through to 500 microns. So that's what most of my results are, and that's given us a huge amount of data. Herschel finished uh, many years ago now, but we're still analysing the data, and it could also look at such large regions of sky, actually. Now what we're doing is following up all these targets with ground-based facilities like the JCMT, which is a telescope built by the UK. It's now owned by a group of East Asian countries, which looks in very narrow windows from the ground because we can have a much bigger dish. You can get much more highly resolved or more sensitive observations, and also ALMA in the future is obviously now taking things with many dishes combined, so you can get really good resolution and sensitivity. If you're looking at these things quite far away, you're just getting the broad strokes image of the galaxy rather than individual stars or individual star-forming clouds, right? Or you yeah, are... so well, the advantage of Andromeda is it's so close with the new ground-based stuff. So, for example, I'm leading this new survey on the JCMT, which is looking with SCUBA 2, which is a camera at 450 and 850 microns. We can actually start getting down to resolutions of a giant molecular cloud. In fact, we can start to resolve these things at 450 microns. That works out about 20 parsec resolution. That's the advantage of going to Andromeda, where you're so close, actually. We can start now looking at individual star formation regions compared to things in the Virgo cluster. And actually now, really for the first time, start working out what are these large-scale relations we see in galaxies? How do they relate to these small-scale? So by studying these individual clouds in external galaxies, you can figure out how the components separate at the interstellar medium within that galaxy and apply it to what you've seen at more distant galaxies. And, and yeah, exactly. That. So for example, there's this relation famous in our field called the Schmidt-Kanekut relation, which relates the amount of star formation to the amount of interstellar medium you have. And globally, we know, you know it's a power law and it has a slope of 1.4. Yeah, if you start looking inside a galaxy, you find actually... The atomic gas doesn't seem to make much difference. It's all down to molecular gas, so two hydrogens bonded, which are the cold, dense regions, and then you kind of get a slope of one. But then if you resolve it even further, you start seeing a sublinear slope. And so kind of now the fact we can resolve this, we can start going, well, how do these global relations that kind of seem to apply to all galaxies, how is it built up from all these smaller star formation blocks in different regions of the galaxy? The, the other advantage is we can, now that we can resolve the different regions, we can start saying, well, how is exactly the star formation changing in, say, like a bulge region of a galaxy, which typically not much star formation is going on. There's not much gas. You've probably got more metals, so anything other than hydrogen and helium. And, you, you know, you can have a completely different regime in this region compared to a standard kind of disky region where you've kind of got a lot of gas and something more like what we see in our local neighbourhood in our galaxy. Within the survey you're running on the JCMT, you've got some sort of Milky Way analogue type 
Oh, so the, um, the 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 one I'm leading on the JCMT is just Andromeda. Oh, it's just Andromeda. Okay, it's, right. um, it's a 275 hour survey to just look at Andromeda. Wow. So the a- the atmosphere makes it very challenging. Okay, yeah. But obviously we're resolving it a lot more mm-hmm. with an 18 meter dish rather than a 15 meter dish. So obviously it gets harder because you're starting resolving it into smaller bits. But also the the atmosphere really it really does hurt you compared to Herschel. It's a is a big problem and the other thing that's the problem with the atmosphere is because andromeda is so big mm-hmm. um it's three degrees wide which is to put in perspective the moon's about half a degree yes yeah so we actually have trouble with the atmosphere varying quite quickly um we start losing large scales on our ground-based data so actually we have to use some kind of clever techniques to take low resolution images from space and fill in the missing information from our ground-based images oh, okay so that is that from the herschel telescope and Yep, so uh, the 450 microns, the wave band overlaps with Herschel. At the other Scooby 2 band, 850 microns, which use Planck, which is in a smaller satellite. And so both of those satellite telescopes are, have history in Cardiff, where you're from, right? So we've got, so actually, if you walk into our lobby, we've got two giant models. Yes. As you walk in, we have an instrumentation group in Cardiff, which specialise in fine infrared and submillimeter, from filters to detectors. So we actually built bits of both instruments. And actually, that's really nice for us astronomers because, A, we get access to these facilities. In the case of Herschel and Planck, you could anyway for ESA. But other instruments that they build things for, we get access to. But also, they have a lot of knowledge about how to best use the data. So when we come and how we have a problem or we try and, you know, when we were first helping write the pipelines for Herschel, we could go talk to them, try and solve issues on our maps. And actually, that's been really useful. Oh, cool. The two models in, in the Cardiff foyer as you walk in, back when the National Astronomy Meeting was here in Manchester in 2012, uh, they came to be displayed and, and me and Mike Peel drove them back in the van. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that well, was a, a scary day having this massive van with these They're, surpri- they're surprisingly expensive. Yes, for, uh, <laughs> they told me how much they cost. And yeah. <laughs> so your survey on the JCMT, this is going to highlight my ignorance of the geography of Hawaii. Are you, are you being affected by the current volcanic activity? Or are you? Uh... Uh, as far as I haven't actually been in touch, but as far as I can tell, no. I mean, so when actually the big explosion happened the other day, I think the ash made it to about 3,000 or 4,000 metres just. Mm-hmm. And obviously all the telescopes, that's where they... Mauna Kea Peak is about 4,000 and or to 4,100 metres. So then above most of the ash, normally the wind's blowing in the other direction. I'm not sure for the optical telescopes, but for the JCMT, it can just see through. But actually, at the moment, the weather's not that good anyway. Oh, right, okay. And Andromeda's not visible, so I'm hoping by the time... Oh, right, okay. So uh, Andromeda becomes visible again in July, August. Things might have settled down by then. Hopefully they would have settled down a bit. And so part of the talk that you've come to give us today mentions that you're going to use gravitational lensing to to uh, help you with, with the research you're trying to do. So would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the advantage, with, as I said, with Andromeda is the fact you can start getting to resolve these individual giant molecular clouds. We know the universe has changed quite a bit. So at higher redshift, at redshift one or two, so that's something like 11 billion years ago, and the universe was forming a lot more stars than it is today. And obviously the galaxies were smaller because things were probably building up. So the question is, what? why were they so efficient? What's causing this big burst back then? Now, because they're so far back, you know, they're very small, you, you can't resolve these disks, you can't perform the same analysis that we can do in our own galaxy or other galaxies. You know, they're normally point sources. We've, with Herschel Atlas, we managed to f- find a huge sample of lenses. It turns out Herschel data was very effective at finding gravitational lenses. So this is just like a magnifying glass. Things get magnified both in brightness 
and also resolution. And with Alma, you have exquisite resolution anyway, but lensing gives you an extra factor of like 10. And actually, so for example, there's a very famous lens SDP81, which was done doing Alma commissioning, and they actually get down to 50 parsec, 40 or 50 parsec resolution when you reconstruct the original source. And that's why I'm actually getting quite interested in it, because being a low redshift person, I'm used to being able to resolve these things. Now with these lenses, we can actually start resolving discs at redshift 2 and 3 mm-hmm. and doing the same studies that we try and do on nearby galaxies and start seeing what is the difference in their discs. Why are they forming these extra stars? And we've actually just got a large sample of lenses done with the highest resolution Alma can do. So we haven't done much work on it. It's work kind of we're doing now. But yeah, we should be getting quite a few with like 40 parsec resolution. So how many sources have you got in? So at the moment, we've got about six. We got them well lenses overall with kind of slightly lower resolution, which we'll start targeting once we choose the best one. But the real high highest resolution ones, we've got to about six. And we're kind of concentrating on two now that are the most spectacular. Yeah, some of the gravitational lens images coming out of Alma are, are kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, we've got one in particular, which we need a name for, but it's almost like a perfect Einstein ring. Oh, which is awesome. Really <laughs> so are you going to have a press release with that then? Hopefully. Yes, um, awesome. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Matt. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for that, Adam. Now we come to the part of this show where we fit in everything that doesn't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds of... <laughs> Yeah, that shouldn't have happened. And that's very much the theme for this particular segment. Hello listeners, Jake here, your friendly neighbourhood show editor for this month. Over the time that I've been part of the Jodcast, I've been involved in a frankly worrying number of episodes, and I've been privy to a number of outtakes and funny moments that haven't made the final cut of various episodes. So I thought it'd be a nice idea to gather a few of them up for you, in a blooper reel, on this most foolish of days. Our first one comes from the December 2016 episode, and that year's pantomime, Beauty and the Beast and the Pulsar Room. Shut up, bird. That'll do. Okay. Yes, I can see it's an astronomer, you fool. Try again. Yes, I can see it's an astronomer, you fool. How can you tell it's an astronomer? How can you tell it's an astronomer? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you could improvise, come up with something. Yeah. I'm a telescope. Power me up and turn me on. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, yeah. We hop ahead now to August 2017. A traditional sound check here on the Jodcast is to talk about what we had for breakfast that morning, as Fiona Healy now demonstrates. Hello, testing. Testing the first microphone. It's Fiona. I had a mango smoothie for breakfast. Bye-bye. And now for a test interlude from Charlie Walker and Benjamin Shaw along with their sinister alter egos of the Jord cast. Okay. Um, oh, they probably shouldn't be in there. No, they should not. Turn it off. Try give myself a shot. Did you? Did you just shot yourself? 
I did that yesterday with my own hair. So. Yes, that's very bizarre. This building gives me electric shocks. Whenever I touch one of those door code things, like the one on our office door, I'm getting 250 volts up my arm. Mm. Those look okay, but again, yeah. I mean, this could just be a soldering job. But it's still unreliable. If we took that out with us to do a conference, mm. and there's the and there's, there's the the squeak. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Yeah, that sounds hearing. good. Does it sound good? Yeah. Um, do a quick recording. This is recording. It is recording. Yep, okay. I'm recording. Great. It's not spiking. It sounds good. Okay. It's so if I unplug quality. the headphones now. What does it sound like? Is it? There's no feedback either. It's still no feedback. Through. But is there a speaker on that thing? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think there is because I heard something coming out of it earlier. Is it turned? Does it have a separate volume knob to the headphones? It's hard here with this Hoover going on. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. Now I've turned Hello. it all the way up. Right, and okay. you can hear it. Yeah. Yep. And it's there. There's some feedback. And if I turn it down. Hello, hello, hello. Do you think it's still recording? Is it again, or is it a? It's a HP SPK vol. So yeah, it's still recording, which is just not feeding back, right? Yeah, that's yeah. just an output volume, isn't it? Okay. So if I stop this. Okay, okay. Hello, hello, hello. Testing, hello, testing. Hello, one, hello, two, three. Hello. This is the uh, this is the fake jogcast, the jawedcast. We're doing our own seldom serious now because uh, because we've left. So we're, we work at Jawdrill Bank. <laughs> and this is a test from the second microphone at George Roll Bank. Blah, 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 blah. In our November episode, Under New Skies, we wanted to pay homage to the red skies brought on by Storm Ophelia. But it took us a couple of tries to get right. The Jodcast. Praise be... Oh, come on, guys. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Okay, it was that. You don't need to do the 10 seconds every time, by the way. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, no, but it's got, it went onto a different recording because I pressed stop. Oh, right. So it's all going to be on one wave. So, yeah, okay, we can do it now. The Jodcast. Oh, praise be... The... <laughs> <laughs> this I'm is so hard. sorry to the editor. Okay, um, okay. The Jodcast. Praise, praise be, be to, to the, the Red sun. sun. With Claire Bretherton, Ian Morrison, Luke Hart, Crispin Agar, Emma Alexander, Josh Hayes, and Tom Scragg. The Jodcast, November 2017 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Luke, and joining me in the studio today are Emma and our new presenter, Crispin. Thanks, Luke. Uh, oh. <laughs> Wait, it's fine. Hi, Crispin. <laughs> <laughs> Just introduce yourself. Thanks, Luke. I'm another of those pulsar people. <laughs> Fantastic. This next one is something really quite special. The November Extra of 2017, in which we covered the 50 Years of Pulsars conference which took place at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Where we record the audio for the presenting for each episode, we have a bit of fun with it. It's certainly not a stilted, formal affair, but generally we do try to stay on track and make sure that we get at least some usable audio at the other end. That did not happen this time around. And our beleaguered show editor for that episode, Adam Averson, although you'll hear Charlie referred to in this, was handed what I can only describe as a glorious train wreck. 
The warning signs were there in this pre-show recording. For the full effect, I'd recommend playing Henry Mancini's Baby Elephant Walk in the background of this clip. It's one of the few that I really love in the true sense of the word. Yeah, as opposed to, like, in a marriage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the true love between between man and podcast. It can can never... I mean, mean, Hollywood churns out, like, (laughs) at least 50 podcast rom-coms. A yeah, year. exactly. Um, it's, just, you know. just a man and a tape recorder. Yeah, 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 yeah. One forbidden tale of. I mean, we can't judge. A, ta- no, a, ta- a tale not. of forbidden love. <laughs> we're not here to judge. <laughs> it's it's um... just hard when, you know, every year when kind of podcast day rolls around and I still don't have any podcast in my life. Well, just... well I'm. I'm... <laughs> and I'm so depressed and I'm just surrounded by people on their headphones, you know, walking around just in true love and they're so happy and I'm like, oh, not another year of being alone again. But then I found Jodcast. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, you, did you not watch the, the recent film? Um, Wrapped up in tape. <laughs> that was. <laughs> Is that an actual film? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, uh. Anyway. I feel sorry for the editor. Now. Why did you? Why did you click record? Is it, are we recording? Yeah, we're recording this. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Charlie. <laughs> No, it's 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 fine. I'll put this on a separate track. But it's, we can we can splice no, it in. Will like this. Yeah, well, no, I, I just felt like we could splice it in. <laughs> oh Lord. Hey, Charlie. Shout Charlie's out to gonna... our lovers. <laughs> shout shout out to our uh, our love rivals at Astronomy Now. It's... Oh, boo. Boo. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> and speaking of God, on to creationism. <laughs> no, that's that's for later. <laughs> Save that. Right, I'm going to stop recording this for a bit. Bye. <laughs> no, I'm not. Bye. Now we get into the show proper. First up, we have Fiona talking to Jocelyn Bell Belay. Oh, there's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> First up, first up, we have you guessed it, Fiona talking to Jocelyn Bell Burnell in her first inter- in our first interview. I should have said there that was incorrect. Should we try it again for the fourth time? Niall, do you want to try this one? <laughs> go for it. You should do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So first up, we have Fiona Healy interviewing Jocelyn Bell Thanks for that, Josh. So uh, first up, I interview uh, Dame Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell, um, uh, in which we talk not really about pulsars at all, actually, um, but about um, equality for women in science. Thanks for that, Fiona. 
Welcome now. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have um, a series of short interviews uh, with other conference attendees. Um, all of them accosted, I think, by Fiona outside the lecture theatre with a portable microphone and recorder. Literally accosted. It was terrible. People would see me coming with my mic and my recorder and their faces would just fall and they'd be like, oh no, you, oh God, I have nowhere to run. Oh no. We and have I been would... warned about yeah, yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> she is coming. <laughs> <laughs> the girl who is here to ask us inane questions about pulsars. <laughs> so, um, first up... Uh, we, your first victim uh, in this series of unfortunate events, people ambushes. That, yeah, in this series of ambushes um, <laughs> is uh, our Rob Archibald and Emily Parent uh, about their pulsar research. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now, uh, <laughs> now Fiona's interviewing Emma Osborne about mountains on neutron stars. Yep, cheers, Fiona. Um, now Fiona interviews Emma Osborne about mountains on neutron stars. We've done that one already. Why is that the same? We are missing someone. Um, Thanks for that, Josh. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, we've just... Uh, oh, oh, right, I see. The next one is Anne Archibald. Yes, okay. At this point, you really have to spare a thought for our poor show editor. He's only four minutes into the edit, with 62 more to go. And we're just about to hit the recording of the odds and ends for this episode, which is where the wheels really start to come off the wagon. Thanks for that, Fiona. Um, I can't believe I forgot your name there. You're literally on all the pieces of paper <laughs> in front of me. Just <laughs> you literally You have issues with names. I, I do, Joel. Show. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Cheers, Fiona. Now, Fiona, in her final sort of swan song, <laughs> before she it's proceeds... This whole show. Yeah. <laughs> um, interviews Anne Archibald about their research into pulsars. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in at... Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't quite fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Um, so first up uh, is me this week. Um, we there is some level of planning to this, but we didn't plan this bit, so it just sounds like I'm incredibly narcissistic, which those of you that know me know is completely true. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so um, in keeping with my tradition of whenever I do an odd and end of bringing a. Um, sorry, I'm just I've taken the headphones off now. That's really weird. Um, <laughs> Your ears getting warm. My ears are getting warm, and I They're can't hear. Quite red. Yeah, yeah, I can't hear myself anymore either. Um, anyway, is that distressing for you? No, no, it's <laughs> no, it's just different. I can't. I can hear you normally as well, which is quite nice. Um, yes, no, we we actually have real microphones and studio re- stereo recording. They know they've been to the live show. Oh, oh yeah, Every, all ten thousand of them. Oh no, not all ten thousand. I don't think they no. quite fit in no. the uh, lecture room in Jodrell. Discovery so, Centre, yeah, yeah. Uh, the health and safety name. No, might, might be a bit of an issue. Well, spilling out the doors. Fire regulation. Anyway, <laughs> what on earth was I talking about? Um, I think you were just going to witter on about planets again. Oh, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, so in. 
<laughs> so in keeping with my tradition of whenever I bring something to an odd end, uh, this is exoplanet related. Sorry, uh, I just feel really uncomfortable because someone besides me is talking. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling well. Uh, it's, <laughs> Is it my turn yet? No, Niall. No. Back in your back in your box. <laughs> I am here too. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. This is gonna be so hard to edit because we're just laughing all the time. Oh. Right, you, you know what? Just 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 for Charlie, I'm gonna start the odds and ends again. Yeah. Um. So now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't quite fit in it. Now we come to the part of the show where we can't quite fit in those other bits. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Just like say something different. <laughs> and... <laughs> right, we're back. Oh, I've gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> Before, about a week ago, um, we generally generally thought that the first exoplanets were discovered in 1992. Um, but recently, some evidence has come out that we might not actually that might not be right. Um, dun dun dun. Correct. Thank you. We we need to we need to get like a, a sound effect board, don't we? Oh my god! That's like if the Jodcast is missing anything, that's what it is. Yeah, it's it's the, it's the ability the ability like to insert broken glass noises. Like just then, you mean? Incidentally, these sound effects come courtesy of the BBC, which has recently released an archive of sixteen thousand various sound clips available for personal, educational, and research purposes. And I'll put a link to those in the show description. That's what will kind of power us through to taking over from Astronomy Now as the yeah, world's it's... number one astronomy <laughs> podcast. <It's> the ab- <laughs> sound effects. <laughs> the ability to add the noise of a spring or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just do it. <laughs> this is why we keep Niall in a box, because he just makes noises. <laughs> They're just often un- unhelpful. <laughs> now Charlie's going to have to unedit that bit out again. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Charlie. Um, anyway. So, anyway, so my odd and end uh, this month is um, an interesting one for exoplanets um, and exoplanetary scientists because we. it turns out that our field may be a lot older than we actually thought. So... Um, until very recently, um, the first exoplanet was thought to be discovered in 1992, around, um, well, coincidentally enough, given the subject of all our interviews, around a pulsar. Um, so the lovingly named PSR B1257 plus 12B. Um, You'd almost think this was a pulsar special show, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, it's almost. Uh, there's there's almost some level of interweaving between all of our subjects. Um yeah, Clever. so so I will say the name again because I love it so much and it's so it catchy. Rolls off the tongue, yeah, PSR B one two five seven plus twelve B. Such um, a pretty name. So pretty. I'm going to name my firstborn daughter that. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I should put it on my list of potential cat names. <laughs> um, I feel like that's more fair. Yeah. <laughs> measurement of these planets and we should at this point say that the planets that they discovered weren't there anymore um, Wait, sorry yes, weren't there anymore weren't there when they discovered them 
How does that work? <laughs> yes, good wait, there's more. Did they leave like a trail of crumbs or something? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. So um, Adrian Van Marnen, um was in 1917. He was looking at um, some... He was looking at... Um, basically looking for stars that had a high proper motion. Um, and he found a couple of them um, called, lovingly enough, in keeping with our excellent names, Van Marnen 1 and, wait for it, Van Marnen 2. <gasps> this is I... beginning to sound more and more like a fairy tale. I know. <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> Van Marnen 2, Van Harder. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> two Van, two Marnen. <laughs> Anyway, it's, so it, ter- it turns out that... Apologies to our Dutch viewers, or not viewers, listeners. <laughs> so anyway, um, Van Marnen 2, it turns out, was a white dwarf. Um, and um, This is definitely a fairy tale, no. <laughs> there is only one of them. We should use this for our pantomime. Van Marnen 2, the white dwarf and his trail of exoplanetary breadcrumbs. <laughs> Right. Well, if you don't hear this bit in the uh, in this month's episode, listen listen out for it in a December podcast. Uh. <laughs> now, if you're thinking at this point, surely, surely they can't top this. Well, hold on to your hats because it's time for Fiona's odd and end. Well, what I have brought this time um, is this really, really trippy paper. Something. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, we're, all, we're all very relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. So professional. Uh, so I did some very quick Googling and uh, um, I found this really weird and cool paper um, in this astrobiology journal, um, the name of which doesn't uh, come to the tip of my tongue because I'm not an astrobiologist. So it's in the International Journal of Astrobiology and it's called Darwin's Aliens. Uh, and it's a group of astrobiologists who are trying to make predictions about what alien would be like make predictions about what alien life would be like um, based on what we know about how life on earth has developed Um, so often when we're thinking about how aliens uh, might be uh, you can kind of make statistical predictions um, based on incidences of things that you see here on Earth. So, for example, uh, over 40 different versions of the eye have developed mm. on Earth. Uh, so it's statistically likely that that would also happen elsewhere, that that's, that's yeah. something that can be replicated and can be developed independently a lot of different ways. And that, you know, a lot of different, very different species have come to that same conclusion of having eyes. Uh, likewise we're carbon based and carbon is hugely abundant uh, in the universe uh, so it's very likely statistically that other organisms would be carbon based but those are just statistical um, mm. predictions that like that's not to say that there aren't like eyeless silicon aliens I, I we're just... getting on to evolution now <laughs> yeah, well, no, my, like my, I, I, I really like the carbon silicon based life forms because there's the, t- the Terry Pratchett trolls which are made made they're, they're silicon based life forms, so they just look like mm. rocks with arms. <laughs> so they're, they're they're humanoid and working completely the same way, but they're just wherever we have carbon, they have silicon. They have silicon, yeah. and yeah. so they're just made out of rock. Yeah. Well, that's like evolution as well. Like yeah. you know, the, the show in the film where you can yeah, then yeah, kill yeah, yeah. them with but selenium. Shampoo, yeah, yeah dog <laughs> exactly. shampoo. Yeah. Oh, is that the one with the smiley face and three? Yeah, yeah. that's the one. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> moving quickly along. <laughs> Sorry, let's just derail Fiona a bit more. It's, <laughs> it's the Fiona show, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so that's one way of kind of making predictions about what aliens would be like. Uh, but another another angle you can come at it from is to kind of look at how life has developed here on Earth and use that to constrain how life might develop elsewhere. Uh, so what they've done this is if you're just interested in like evolution it's a really interesting paper to mm. read um if you want to kind of brush up on what evolution is and how it works and why it's so interesting because basically they said like life here on earth um let's see now i learned a lot of new words today when i was reading this paper yagen <laughs> bus <laughs> um, um can i just check this was on archive not vix right right yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. Just double checking. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's in like a real journal. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's totally real. We, we've <laughs> seen some of the pictures everything. that are in this paper. Oh and they yeah, are we'll get onto that. Yeah, this is, they've 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 done some illustrations, um, like kind of hypothetical mm. examples of what these aliens might look like, which we'll describe to you in detail later. Are we allowed to put links on the website? Yeah, we'll put a yeah. link, to, link the to the paper. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah. you guys have to see this. It's, <laughs> something else <laughs> so but anyway shuffling some paper um <coughs> i'm just dying sorry um, um so right um so natural selection has kind of determined some things about what life is like here and so um the, the life forms that undergo natural selection they have heredity uh, which means like they pass on their genes and they have variation which means like we're not all identical to each other is good for some of us. Wait, hang on. Was that aimed at one of us? No. <laughs> it was said like it was. It was, it was we, just a general burn. Do you feel like we should unplug Fiona's microphone now and just just do the show the two of us? Yeah, I would agree, but I'm using that microphone also. So, <laughs> so you Fine, should we that. put Fiona back in your box? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're being relegated See. to now just doing the show noises. See, this is an example of a conflict. <laughs> Um, uh, species um, have conflicts, but the conflicts uh, must be outweighed by common interests if uh, they're going to evolve. Yeah, um, so we do so actually want to produce our, a show yeah, our common at the end is... of this. <laughs> even, though I may be, even though I may be leveling thinly veiled insults in your direction, <laughs> you still need me to get this show out. Well, there's a reason we're all on a podcast and not on a streaming site, isn't there? So. <laughs> We've got faces for radio. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told I've got a I've got a voice for silent movies. <laughs> I did see you in that Charlie Chaplin classic. So yeah, no, I was I was in the choir for that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, so we're variable. We're not all identical to each other. Uh, and <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to re-rail this, but it's not sorry. happening. Sorry. Right now, I'm back. Deep breaths. Anyway, so um, species that undergo natural selection are variable, um, and then they they experience what's called differential success. So, like the classic example is giraffes with shorter necks were at a disadvantage compared to giraffes with long necks because giraffes with long necks could reach the tops of the trees and bite the leaves. And so, um, so um, 
that means that if alien life is also undergoing natural selection, um, it will have those traits. Um, and they reason that, so, so that's a big if, um, or it could be a big if, do, do alien species actually also experience natural selection? Is that how they develop? Um, these people reason that they, that they do, um, uh, because essentially if they didn't, they would never progress beyond just tiny little single yeah, cell Yeah, well, I mean, we, 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 see na- we see natural selection and the, the effects of evolution mm. and the steps of it in ev- like even things that aren't alive. So, yeah. like, um, planets or whatever. Like, if, if you have, if, like, there are selection criteria, yeah. Yeah, we, exactly. the, why are we here? Well, it yeah. might just be a selection bias of we were in the right place at the right exactly. time and everything else didn't mm-hmm. work. Exactly. Or um, there may be infinite parallel universes and we're all just coexisting. And let's, get, all... let's go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> no. <Somewhere. laughs> Maybe not. Anyway, um, so, and so um, they say that, like, so species that develop in that way, uh, they, they end up having this kind of nested structure. So they start off, you start off with something that's just a few cells, and then the cells all combine together to make a multi-cell organism, and then those all combine together to make something a bit more complex. And each each iteration is made up of um, uh, the bits of the last thing. Um, so then the, the, the more complex animals come together to form like societies, essentially. Mm. Um, so so each of them can be thought of as being little um, oh so they're they're treating society like a society yeah. almost mm-hmm. like as an mm-hmm. organism itself yeah yeah they are they are which oh. um and uh they go on to say like that's as far as we've gotten yeah um i feel like you can definitely describe some mm. people as pathogens <laughs> i mean oh. if you want to make that. <laughs> sorry i was looking at nile while i said that i, see, and I don't I'm know not why the only one in here with the evolutionary related sick burns <laughs> Getting back onto track with evolution. <laughs> <laughs> we evolve past this. Hey. Um. Anyway, so yeah, um, uh, they say that it might go even further with aliens. That they might have some. The, the expression they used was hideously complex um, s- structure that goes beyond the kind of. I guess the societies we have can be thought of as sort of loose organisms that interact together. And again, because they've got common interests, mm. um, so they overcome conflicts. Um, so like, say, we, in the, in the way that we overcame the conflict of all insulting each other. To <laughs> all those sick birds. <laughs> all the mean things we were saying to Niall. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, um, that a thing, any entity which overcomes conflicts within itself to, to unite for a common interest can be seen as an organism. So Yeah. Um, so, so these are kind of just general traits that they say if, if aliens de- um, have developed according to natural selection, um, that's what they would be like. Um, and uh, they mentioned Ewoks at one stage. <laughs> I don't know why. Are you sure this isn't Vikra? It's definitely a real paper. It was just so interesting. We'll put a link to it and you can read it yourself. This is a really great read. Judge for yourself if Fiona is having us on. I am not. It's real news. You do really, you, you know it's November, right? Not. April. I it's, know. <laughs> <laughs> it's real news, I promise. Um, I'm really so, tempted to sing the Ewok song now. I just can't. Please don't. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not getting to copyright issues. <laughs> no, you can do seven <laughs> seconds of it, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but still, please That's don't. Letting me know that, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> please do not take any legal advice from the Jodcast team. <laughs> oh, hang on. 
Sorry, I've lost which page I'm on in my notes. I'm just not used to having notes. I usually do no preparation. I know. We, yeah, we we were all stunned into silence for a bit earlier, and then <laughs> decided to insult Niall again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Is this is this now the theme? <laughs> yeah, it was the Fiona show. Now it's apparently the anti-Niall show. <laughs> I wasn't aware that I'd signed up for a roast. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> So anyway, to bring this back on topic, so if we if we are looking out for aliens, um, they say that just kind of logically speaking, we can expect them to have the sim- similar kind of nested structures of life forms to what we have. Um, so um, constituent parts coming together to work for the common good of the overall group of whatever it is they are, be it cells or um, organs or um, individual beings. And then they kind of go on to make some, I mean, not even predictions about what that would look like, but they have an illustration of what such a thing could hypothetically look like. Oh, really? uh, Tell me more, Fiona. I'll describe it to you now. So so at this point, I can't see them. Niall and Fiona have hidden these illustrations from me. You know what we'll do? I'll describe it and you draw it. Okay, right, yeah. And we'll put Josh's drawing and we'll put the actual illustration on the website. Right. I should at this point say that I struggle to hold a pen, okay. <laughs> let alone use so it artistically. you want to start landscape. I want to start uh, landscape. Yeah. Actually, okay. no, a portrait might do. Portrait, well. or, or so should, 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 I, should I go at 45 degrees just Maybe, to yeah, jazz it yeah, up a bit? exactly. So, should um, I sing the smart music now? <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll get into copyright issues. We've been through this, Niall. So it's kind of a thing that seems to exist mostly underground, but with the top of its head sticking out over the ground. Okay. Um, Please, what what shape is its head? Um, bit like a potato. Okay. With a kind of a sucky thing on the end. Yeah, I'd buy that. Sucky things a good sucky description. Thing. Yeah. Uh, and then the bit. So, so you're getting all that. Yeah. So, a potato with a sucky thing at the end, and and the top part of the potato is sort of protruding protruding out over the ground. Oh, so yeah. the whole thing's the potato. Uh, well, the top. No, bit, not the whole the thing. Oh, just just bit. just yeah, we're, just we're the just top at bit. its head. At okay. least what I assume is its head. Um, One can only wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Lord knows. So anyway, so the bit that's over the ground. Yeah. Has these kind of antenna-like things sticking out of it, but like loads of them, not just two. Loads of them. Yeah. Okay. A bit like hair, I guess. Okay. I'm not sure. That's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> um, there seems to be kind of grass growing next to it on the ground. Um, I'm not sure that's relevant to the. But no, thing, but it's just but... the context. <laughs> yeah. They've been very detailed. Okay, so that's the overgrown bit, and then under the ground. Okay. What's said. the weather like in this um, photo? It doesn't show weather, but there are some bird-like things okay. flying around. I think the fact that they're flying around, I think that one might actually be a bug. It's like possibly. it's a, like a weird slug with but wings. The fact that that's flying around suggests it's not raining because okay, bugs, yeah. bugs yeah, don't tend to fly out in the rain. That, no, so. yeah, okay, no. right. And there's one. no puddles, and the ground looks kind of dry. True. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Does it look like a Tuesday or? Um, you know, if you made me pick a day. Actually, yeah. in the figure caption, <laughs> <laughs> it does not say what day it is. If you made me pick a day, I would have said a Saturday. 
Okay, right. Um, okay, so okay. so he's he's on his weekend. Yeah, I guess point. so. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty yeah. chilled out potato pretty thing chilled. with a sucky yeah. thing on the end of it. With the sucky thing. So yeah, so the sucky thing is under the ground, mm-hmm. and then there's kind of a neck, but the neck is quite thick. Like the neck is thicker than the head. What? And it's well, no, or at least it's not like it's like. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it's all wrinkly. Like there's all wrinkles. It's almost coming out as a conic shape eventually. Yeah, right? it is kind of. Conic, conic shape, but in down. different layers, like the Michelin Man. Yes. Oh, yeah, so what? The, the whole thing is like a cone. It's actually quite like the Michelin Man, but yeah, a cone. But conic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and then it has other sucky bits on it, as well. Okay. Kind so of it's... at various intervals as you go down. Okay, so it's basically a sucky potato-headed cone. I see what's going on, and then the sucky bits. So, because I was like, oh, it's got sucky bits, and then it's also got arms, and then the arms also have sucky bits on the end. What? But, but it looks like the arms, <laughs> the arms can detach and fly away, and that's what the flying things are up here. Oh yes, it is. What they, on earth are you talking about? That, that's borrowed out, they and it's growing ground, wings. And they grow wings and they fly away. Okay, right. I'm starting this illustration again. <laughs> okay, so we've got a potato, potato-headed cone, with. Sucky arms. And but there's different levels, like the Michelin Man. Yeah, so like, yeah, like it's, yeah. It's, it's kind of little blobs. In blobs. It's yeah. like a succession of smaller blobs yeah. sitting on top of each other, um, with sort of detachable blobby arms. Okay. Mm. Like Mr. Iv for uh, you Welsh viewers, listeners. What? I keep saying viewers, <laughs> listeners. <Yeah. laughs> Mr. What? Mr. Iv. Is this a feel... person in Wales? <laughs> Is this what Welsh people look like? It's the Welsh king. It's <laughs> well, I mean, given how much I've been insulted today, maybe. <laughs> I, right, you, you, right, I have no idea what Mr. Eve is. I am Welsh, just to clarify. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> so how are you doing there, Josh? Do you think you've got it all? Um, or do you want any further clarifying descriptions? Uh, no, I... I think I've nailed this. Okay. I'm glad. I'm intrigued. Don't forget the antennae. Oh, oh and the, and the no, top. Yeah, no, don't, don't worry. I'm still on it. Yeah, and it's... the sucky bits, they, 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 they detach themselves and yes. they tunnel upwards and fly away yeah. once they leave the ground. Oh, yeah, there's a sucky bit flying with yeah. wings. Yeah, so that's what don't, it is. Don't forget that. Thing. Mm. Okay. So, but we don't know if they can fly in the rain or not, but it doesn't look like it's it, raining. Well, it doesn't appear to be raining, so I think no. all we can conclude is that we cannot say that they cannot fly in the rain. Okay. Um, as so useless as that is. I'm beginning to wonder what the point of all of this is, to be honest. What you've done there is given us a null result. <laughs> Great. I, f- I feel like we may need to move on from this. Cause this okay, is right. Well, this, g- is, this is my attempt. <laughs> I, I must that's, say that's um, not far off. That's very, very good. Although yours has a smiley face. Um, well, I, I, assumed it did, I assumed it needed eye. Oh. No, it just has a socky thing as the face. Okay. Actually, um... Uh, ironically, although that that kind of looks like a smile now, actually, Ooh, and yeah. dimples. And look, this, this looks like a smiley face. Yeah. These look like eyes and. Okay, maybe maybe you've got this. Yeah, actually, yeah, you might you it. you may actually have got it more than we have, and we can see it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> what can I say? I'm just naturally gifted. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah see right. see the website if you're interested in seeing Josh's so, yeah, drawing. We'll put, <laughs> we'll put Josh's drawing alongside the original drawing. I am now website. updating all my LinkedIn things to say I'm a published artist. Just can I say at this point? <laughs> and you guys can decide for yourself if you think that Josh has kind of gotten any interesting insights here into <laughs> alien life. Um, so anyway, or I if think, he should be sectioned. I think <laughs> um, I'm going to 
uh, abstain from forming any conclusion to this odd and end and um, <laughs> I just, just move things along to Niall, who's going to talk to us about how Brian Cox is wrong. Not wrong, not wrong. <laughs> let's, let's not just, let's not say that. We hi are, Brian, if we you're are there. a podcast at Manchester, after all. So hi, yeah, hi Brian. Don't hate me, please. <laughs> I want so, some TV work eventually. <laughs> apparently, I don't have the face for it. But if you could get me in, that would be cool. Um, so <laughs> there's just so many different things I could do with that. I can't choose. No, I'm just and they'd let all it go. and they'd all have to be edited out, Fiona. Oh, no, so, so now we can just hint at them, and all the listeners can do it at home. We should Sorry. have a write-in contest. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry, sorry, Niall. I'm so so sorry. I'm not usually this mean. <laughs> no, Niall, please. <laughs> Please make this stop. <laughs> I fear at this point I may have lost control somewhat of this. It's the Fiona show. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we know we made no, that clear at the start. Let's, let's so, yeah. I'm not sure if someone filled the room with laughing gas on that particular day, but all of that happened. That last dollar and end was heavily cut in the final edit, particularly all of the discussion around drawing the alien. Something like that just wasn't suitable for a serious special episode, which the November Extra ultimately was. Fortunately, I kept hold of the raw audio, and an outtakes reel like this is the perfect place for it. So, do you think Josh managed to capture the likeness of Darwin's alien? You can let us know. A few times when I've been having a particularly difficult time with my PhD, I've listened back to that raw show and had myself a good chuckle. As for Adam, it's fair to say that he didn't enjoy it quite as much. Moving on. Having walked through the valley of the shadow of the thesis right up, Ben returns to the show in the December Extra of 2017. But this journey has clearly wrought a toll upon him. Hello and welcome to this month's Aston Asking a Star. Good start. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this month's Ask an Astronomer. I'm Benjamin Shaw and I'm here with Professor Tim O'Brien. Hi Tim. Hello. We skip ahead a bit now to our April 2018 episode. This, of course, was the proper inaugural episode of The Fiona Show. We'd originally recorded another little intro for this episode to replace the normal segment voice. But for whatever reason, I just could not get it working on the day the show was meant to go out. I was also away from uni at that time travelling for final preparations for my upcoming wedding, so I had no choice but to just cut it on the spot and use our standard segment instead, which I knew worked. The news segment has sat unused on our machine ever since, but now I have the chance to bring it to you. Here it is. This is a segment from an episode of The Fiona Show. If you're looking for the other podcasts produced from the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, you can visit jodcast.net. Moving along, when you're suddenly put on the spot and have to do something quickly, 
Even basic knowledge can desert you in that moment. I'm trying to remember how this works. Uh, okay, um, so this is an interview with Amy Tyndall um, of the University of Edinburgh, um, which I have no idea if you can even hear me. I'm going to try turning up the recording level and hope for the best. Uh, hang on, no, you know what I can t- I wouldn't feel too bad about it, Josh. It happens to us all. In the odds and ends of the July 2018 episode, Laura introduced us, or at least to me, the concept of numerosity, as part of a look at how children acquire both the concept of numbers and counting skills. The wider context behind this clip was pushing back against the false premise that boys are somehow more naturally suited to studying STEM subjects than girls, which made it especially unfortunate when this happened. Yes. Well, they use dots in this test, so that's okay. <laughs> so that was the that was the first test. Uh, the other test um, was uh, verbal counting acquisition during preschool. So that's uh, whether you can, well, basically whether you've acquired the skill to be able to count. Um, and that's an early test because the first sort of skills that children learn is to sort of just memorize the numbers they don't actually associate if they say the number three they don't actually conceive of three objects they just remember that two is between three and four um as a word no it's not jake please keep that jake jake (laughs) please i will give you anything keep that i love the fact that it was the guy saying that yes you can't keep it in because of the gender issue it would look bad. Okay. No, <laughs> you you bad. are wrong. <laughs> okay. So obviously, as adults, we lose this skill. <laughs> no, so children can. I say the number three is between two and four. Hey. <laughs> um, but they don't actually understand that that means three objects. Four shall thou not count. Neither count thou two excepting that I then proceed to three. In the final edit of that show, I was able to use the magic of post-production to cut out the words two and three and swap them around, to make everyone sound like the intelligent and articulate people that they are. I wish I had post-production in real life. Oh well. This next outtake is a brief one from setting up for our interview with Amari Trio which ultimately went out in our December 2018 episode. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. It's picking it up on the levels, isn't it? But... You stop. Hang on. Hello? The, the volume was right down. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Okay. Is this recording? Error's level is good. Here is Houston. <laughs> a man has landed on the moon. This is Apollo Houston. We're receiving you loud and clear. <laughs> problem, problem. <laughs> Forgot my sandwich. Well, that's what we normally do. We ask what people had for breakfast this morning. Yeah. So you think as well because it's not—it doesn't show up with the time elapsed for the recording, whereas usually it comes up with yeah um, how long it's been recording for. So I'm just wondering if it is actually recording or if it's just feeding the sound into here and in there, as it usually does. But it's not actually. An important skill in producing shows, and one that I've certainly had to get a lot better at during my tenure here is people management. Finding astronomers who are willing to take the time out of their work days to lend their time and expertise to the Jodcast. 
Luckily, we've always had a solid team willing to do this, including Mike and Ian, who handled the Ask an Astronomer for the December Extra of last year. This pre-segment clip does illustrate, though, that if you put two astronomers in a room, they can quickly get themselves into trouble if left unsupervised. Particularly if asked about what they like for breakfast. Although fried bread rather than toast. Yes. Oh, personally, I like Eggs Benedict. <laughs> That's true. Eggs Royale is good as well. Eggy bread. It's, a, it's the whole day sauce that does Oh, yeah, I do like eggy bread. Oh. Good memories. With bacon on. Oh, yeah, I do love some bacon. How are we doing for bacon? Okay, bacon is good. Bacon. <laughs> I like this. I do bacon, toast, toast is still good. Toast and bacon and eggs. Yep. Bit of black pudding. Oh, yeah. yeah. Although I don't like the black pudding you get down here. It's too cakey. You need the Scottish black pudding that's got oatmeal in. Oh, yes. Stornway black pudding, that's what you need. Are we recording? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Podcast okay. December Extra, take one. Yes. Mm. So, I believe it's Tian that's editing this. All right. So, <laughs> hello. Do with hello. this whatever you like. Yeah. Do we need a bit of silence? Okay. Yes. And I will need to disappear <laughs> once this is. Poof! He disappears. Okay, and he disappears. Disappear. He's off for some toast. I am not off for toast. <laughs> Enjoy your toast. Enjoy it. So yeah, it will need... We, we will raise a toast. Yes, I'll let, I'll let the sound of that too. <laughs> Please give it to me. It's a silence. <laughs> right. Um, it's a serious and solemn occasion. Right. I, I, did, I didn't bring any notes for me, so I'm just winging it. Let's make sure the introduction has no toast. Yeah, you've got the easy part there. Yeah, that's true. Right, how do I get this where I can see it? That'll do. Toast and ten seconds of silence. Ah, time for some toast. Time for some toast. Yeah, that can stay there. Thank you and good luck with your toast adventures. Mm. Bye, toast. And your editing. In that same episode, we had a job bite via video call from Dr. Justin Bray who was speaking to us from a remote site in Australia about installing a particle detector that his team had been working on. Of course, one hazard of video calls is that the connection can drop midstream, which is exactly what happened here. Uh, the current state of knowledge is that we know that they are primarily... Uh, a mm-hmm. Uh-oh. Oh no, what's it done? Which one it? Ah, come on. The Wi-Fi is still Hmm. Sorry, still there? Sorry yes. about that. So yeah, we lost uh, you for a minute there. Try asking the question again and uh, I'll, I'll try to come up with an answer that I can go through before it starts lagging. <laughs> okay, well, I'll do my best. Ah, okay. So is there the potential maybe to work with the data you're getting out of IceCube to localise the sources that you're seeing with your detectors? Uh-oh, oh. I think he's gone again. <laughs> oh no! That's alright, give it a minute, hopefully it will come back. 
<laughs> Maybe not. Well, it could just as easily be us. Yeah. Classic edgy Rome. What's it doing? Just check there. Well, we're still recording, so that's good. Uh-oh. It looks like we've lost him. <laughs> no, it's gone! I have a couple of outtakes for you now from our Christmas epic, The Lord of Turing. Written for us by Luke and Charlie. In this first clip, we join the story as Gandalf the Academic explains to Frodo just how Bilbo came by his precious data. What's so important about this data of Bilbo's? Where did it come from? He stumbled upon it, quite by accident, during an adventure to reclaim observations from the vault of Smaug, the great dragon who had for an age hoarded many terabytes in his supercooled servers below the Misty Mountains. So is Smaug basically Brian Cox? <laughs> <laughs> Please keep that in. Getting sold to say that line as well. So there's the scratch sound and then Unsong's line. I mean, think about it. They're both semi-mythical beings that nobody sees around anymore, possessed of great power, and supposedly hiding in their secret lair under a mountain, guarding a fantastic treasure. I don't think I'll pitch it as a film just yet, though. As our panto narrator Niall pointed out, we're still recovering from the last ones. Our second outtake comes courtesy of Tom Bombadolt. Dave always sends us a couple of versions of his cameo, so the editor can pick and choose the one that's most appropriate for that point in the show. From the vaults, Here's the one that ultimately went unused. Come along, off we go. In fact, I can I could do that. I could camp that up even more if you want, and then you could just slip in a little what an eccentric performance. Um, I'll I'll do it again. Let's just see. <clears throat> Ho, oh, hey, merry day! Hello there, me hearties! Old Tom Bombadolt's rhymes you cannot fault, so hop into the TARDIS! Why, I'm your beloved Tom. Don't say you've never heard of me. Anyway, people are getting impatient, so I'm here to give you a lift. Who knew this cameo could be so very practical? <sighs> Come along, come along, everyone inside. We'll have you in Rivendell in just a moment. <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> what an eccentric performance. So, we're almost at the end of this little collection of outtakes and bloopers. I hope you've had fun with them. But, I have one last thing for you. I've got one last little sweetener for all you Jodcast lovelies out there. I've said recently over on our Facebook page that we have some exciting plans for future stuff. Well, I have for you today some exclusive audio from our talks about those plans. Here's how we got on.
sorry, listeners. I'm afraid I am still sworn to secrecy. Or has this all been an April Fool as well? I'll let you decide. Well, that's all from me today. It's time for this Jodcaster to hit the old starry trail. To bring us back to some sense of normality, with a calming voice, here's Professor Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky North. The Night Sky for April 2019. Well, I'm afraid we have to wait up a little bit later to get dark skies now, or get up even earlier if we want to watch things before the dawn. Let's have a look anyway. As darkness falls, the constellation of Gemini, with its bright stars, Castor and Pollux, is setting in the west. Over to the south is the constellation of Leo, the lion, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. Between them is a fairly empty area of sky, but it's a constellation of Cancer, and if you look with binoculars, about halfway between the two, you should pick up a rather lovely open cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Prysipe. Coming further over towards the east from Leo is the bright star Arcturus, at the bottom of the constellation of Bootes. And rising up towards the zenith, we come to the three stars that make up the handle of the plough, which is almost overhead. Ideal with a small telescope for looking at some of the galaxies there. Of course, I'm sure you know that the two bright stars, Merak and Dupe, to the right of the plough, point up towards Polaris in the north. Going further north, towards the northern horizon, you'll come to the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus, which I shall mention in the highlights of the month. But first, let's have a look at the planets. Jupiter. It starts the month rising at about 1am and brightens from magnitude minus 2.3 to minus 2.5 as the month progresses, whilst the angular size increases slightly from 40 to 43 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises around 11pm, so it'll be due south around 3am. Sadly, it's heading towards the very southern part of the ecliptic. Currently, it lies in the very lowest part of Ophiuchus, just above Scorpius. So as it crosses the meridian, due south, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees. Atmospheric dispersion will thus take its toll and an atmospheric dispersion corrector would greatly help to improve our views of the giant planet. Now Saturn, shining with a magnitude increasing from plus 0.6 to plus 0.5 during the month, rises about 3am on April the 1st, but about 1am by month's end. Its disk is 17 arc seconds across, and its rings, which are still nicely tilted to the line of sight, spanning some 36 arc seconds across. By the end of April, Saturn will be near the meridian just before sunrise, so morning twilight, if you can get up that early, will be the best time to observe it. But again, sadly, Saturn is now in Sagittarius, and at the lowest point of the ecliptic, so it will only reach an elevation again of about 14 degrees when due south. As with Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector will help improve our view. Mercury, 
passed through inferior conjunction, that's between us and the sun, on March the 15th. And at the start of the month, rises low in the east-southeast, about 30 minutes before the sun. But shining at a magnitude of plus 0.9, only reaches an elevation of about 4 degrees. It reaches greatest elongation west, some 28 degrees from the sun, on April 11th and lies down to the left of Venus as the two inferior planets approach each other as the month progresses. On the 1st of April, they lie about 10 degrees apart, but are closest at just over 4 degrees apart on the 16th, and that's the closest, in fact, for three years. One will need a very low horizon, and binoculars could well be needed to reduce the background glare. But of course, please do not use them after the sun has risen. Now Mars. Though fading from plus 1.5 to plus 1.6 magnitudes during the month, it remains prominent in the southwestern sky after sunset, setting some four hours after the sun at the start of April and less than three and a half hours by month's end. At an elevation of 34 degrees after sunset, it is moving through Taurus, passing between the Pleiades and Hyades clusters on the 4th, 5th of the month. On the 16th, it passes some 7 degrees north of Aldebaran, the red giant star that lies between us and the Hyades cluster. Its angular size falls from 4.6 down to 4.2 arc seconds during the month, so one will not be able to see any details on its salmon pink surface. Unless, of course, you have access to the Hubble Space Telescope. Venus. Venus begins April with a magnitude of minus 3.9 and with an angular size reducing from 13.1 to 11.6 arc seconds as it moves away from the Earth. However, at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called its phase, increases from 81 to 86%, which is why the brightness remains constant throughout the month. On the 1st of April, it rises at about 5am, only 30 minutes before the sun, so binoculars might well be needed to spot it through the sun's glare. A very low horizon just south of east will be needed. But of course, don't use binoculars after the sun has risen. So finally, the highlights of the month. Well, as I briefly mentioned, on April the 5th, in the early evening, Mars will be seen to lie between the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. That should be nice. On April the 6th, something I don't normally do, but I'm going to mention three open clusters which are seen towards the northwest at an elevation of about 35 degrees after sunset. You should be able to see the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. Up to its left lies Perseus with its bright star Murfak. That star lies at the heart of the Alpha Persei cluster, very widely spread across the sky and about 600 light years distance, having an age of about 60 million years. Now between Cassiopeia and Perseus can be seen with binoculars or a small telescope what is called the Perseus Double Cluster. That's the common name for the two open clusters NGC 869 and NGC 884. These are quite young, with an age of only 13 million years and they lie at a distance of about 7,500 light-years. There are more than 300 blue-white supergiant stars 
in each cluster. On April the 9th, in the early evening, one will see Mars and a crescent moon in Taurus lying above the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. Now, something a bit different. On April the 10th, you have a chance to spot Asteroid 2 Pallas. That was the second asteroid to be discovered. It only shines at magnitude 8, so you'll need good binoculars or a small telescope. But it should be easier to find. I've mentioned Arcturus rising in the east in the evening. Up to its right, not far away, is a second bright star called Murfred. Exactly on the line between them, and just to the lower left of Murfred on that night, one should be able to spot Pallas. Binoculars, as I said, or a small telescope would be needed, but that would be rather nice. On the 15th of April, the moon will lie below the constellation of Leo. When looking at Leo, up to its left lies a very wide open cluster called the Coma star cluster, which is well seen in binoculars. On April the 24th, if you can get up early enough before dawn, you could see Jupiter, Saturn and a waxing gibbous moon lying low above the horizon towards the south. And finally, two objects on the moon. On the nights of April the 14th and the 26th, the moon's terminator, close to which the shadows are longest and things show up more easily, are two of the greatest craters on the moon, Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It is a relatively young crater, which is about 108 million years old, has a diameter of 85 kilometers and is nearly five kilometers deep. At full moon, the rays of the material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the surface. Now further up in the eastern part of Oceanus Procolarum is the 800 million year old crater Copernicus, which lies beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's quite a young crater too. It has nice terrace walls about 93 kilometers wide and nearly four kilometers deep. Both can be picked out with binoculars, but of course, they're ideal targets for a small telescope. So let's hope you have some good viewing during April. Finally, just a quick advert. Um, over the last year or so, I've been writing what I call my Astronomy Digest, and there are now nearly 60 articles about all things astronomical, a lot of them, in fact, about astro-imaging, which I, I quite like doing. So if you just put Astronomy Digest into a search engine like Google, it should come up. It tends to come up first, actually, and there might be something of interest for you to read there. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogasanu and Samuel Lesk with The Night Sky Where You Are. Hi everyone and welcome to Galactic Conversations in April. I'm Sam Leskey. And I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. First of all, April is the Global Astronomy Month. But wait, it gets even better than that. From Sunday, March 31 to Sunday, April the 7th, is the 2019 International Dark Sky Week. It was created in 2003 by high school student Jennifer Barlow. International Dark Sky Week has grown to become a worldwide event and a key component of Global Astronomy Month. 
Each year it is held in April around Astronomy Day. Very exciting. Actually, very bright stars adorn the evening sky in April. Sirius, Canopus, Alpha, Centauri are visible in one go and the galactic center starts making a reappearance in the southern sky. Yes, rising about 10.30 p.m. by the end of the month. The Milky Way looks fantastic in April and it stretches almost horizon to horizon and as the dense star fields and dust lanes of the galactic center become more visible, our galaxy creates quite a spectacle throughout the month. Just have to be here in the southern hemisphere. Those of you with a keen eye will be able to spot the Milky Way Kiwi rising in the early morning at the start of the month. Here is autumn again. Grapes have been harvested and are waiting to be transmuted into wine. And while we wait, we prepare for the long, beautiful nights in which the galactic center climbs to the zenith. April is a Latin name, Aprilis, or it maybe means the mispronounced name of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, since the 1st of April was dedicated to Venus. The ancient Romans were celebrating Veneralia. Maybe it has a common root with aprire in Latin again to open as it's opening buds and blossoms in, in Europe is the month of the first blossoms on the trees. Whereas here we also get the first taste of winter. As the odd southerly front roars up from the southern ocean to remind everyone what's on the way. Those closer to the tropics start seeing a bit less humidity as the dry season starts. The roaring southerly fronts also remind us of the super clear, cool and stable air that often sits behind those fronts and makes cool evenings of amazing and really stable sea. So what's the sun up to? The sun rises at about 7 in the morning and by the end of the month it's rising at 7.40 and it sets from around quarter past 7 in the evening at the start of the month to half past 5. Yes, that is correct. At the end of the month it sets at about half past 5. Because April is also the month we get rid of daylight saving the dairy farmers will be much happier. So towards the end of the month, we would be enjoying a beautiful and long night. That's an astronomer's if, dream. That's if the sky will stay clear. Yes, with those roaring southerlies coming through. April is more or less the month of the zodiacal constellation of the fish, Pisces, with the sun moving into the ram or Aries only on the 20th of April. That means the sun is transiting both constellations of Pisces and Aries and so we cannot see them because of two reasons. One, the stars that made them are well behind the sun and two, it's kind of dangerous to look into the sun. Unless you have a solar telescope that is well maintained and is designed for looking at the sun. Then you can safely look at the sun, but only then. However, because the sun is in Aries, it means that 180 degrees on the other side of the zodiacal band is Scorpius, one of my favorite constellations, and I mean, you, you can tell why. This means Scorpius is opposite the sun and it will be visible in the night sky. Scorpius is quite high in the late evening by the end of the month, meaning that Sagittarius and the galactic center will also be not far behind. The most spectacular feature of the southern hemisphere sky and to say this is such an understatement, the Milky Way is so striking here in New Zealand that in the absence of a polar star, people could and should orientate themselves by the Milky Way for two reasons. One is because we think it is so amazing, and also because when it's at its highest, the Milky Way stretches here from north to south through the zenith. What else is better than that? Plus, it might remind people to be more sensible about lighting so we can preserve dark skies. 
you know, back in 2011, it was the first time when I really saw the Milky Way. Not that I thought I didn't see it before, I thought I did, but nah. It was in the Wairarapa back in 2011 and I got called to go outside and here was the galaxy rising and that's a sight I will never forget. I like to call it my my city of stars but then it looks like the leg of the octopus is what we were talking about last month since the center it's almost on the horizon at sunset and is like really chubby and then it goes into a very thin strip at the end of it on uh, on the western horizon. But from the rising core all the way to its setting edge from Scorpius to Taurus is one glorious panorama. The city of stars stretches through the sky southeast to northwest this month. The Maori have three names for the same asterisms or groupings of stars at different times of the year. What we know as Scorpius is, for instance, at this time of the year, Manaya Kitarangi, the guardian of the skies. It's a great time of the year to get the telescope out in the early evening. Now the daylight saving is almost finished and just browse the star fields, catching glimpses of nebula and star clusters and heaps of globular clusters, especially around Scorpius. So what can we see? I call April the month of the ropes of stars, they're like ropes of stars flowing through the sky. Imagine two arches, one smaller running through the northern part of the sky, that is the ecliptic, and the other one larger running through the zenith, that is the galaxy. So there are bright stars on the ecliptic and there are bright stars throughout the galaxy. On the ecliptic, through the northeastern sky, this lower arch of the ecliptic marks the plane of our solar system and it's bearing the zodiacal constellations. They intersect the Milky Way right on the horizon at the start of the month in the late evening. To see things on the ecliptic, one should simply turn towards that part of the sky that carries the memory of the path of the sun, or of the moon for that matter. Let's swipe them from west to east. Setting first in the evening, at visually towards the outskirts of the galaxy, as we can see it from the Earth, and at about 65 light years away, is the red giant Aldebaran, very low on the horizon and setting at about 8.30pm by the middle of the month in Taurus at 0.86 magnitude, so very bright. Then hot white castor and orange pollux in Gemini at 1.93 and 1.14 magnitudes each, followed by blue-white Regulus at magnitude 1.36 in Leo, almost due north. And blue-white speaker in 0.98 magnitude in Virgo in the northeast. Just rising near the centre of the galaxy is another red giant, Antares, 1.06 magnitude and 604 light years from us. A very, very huge star. Other bright stars throughout the galaxy, the larger arch, outside of the ecliptic are a bunch of bright stars, including the famous Betelgeuse, a red giant, a 0.42 magnitude, and Rigel, Another giant, but blue, at 0.13, both in Orion. Then the dogs of the Celestial River, because they're guarding it, each from one side, are yellowish-white Procyon, the small dog at 0.34 magnitude, and Sirius, the big dog, at minus 146 magnitude. Sirius is a blue giant and the brightest star in the sky. The big dog constellation finally looks the right way up, heading also towards the western horizon from it. Turn your gaze left. Nearby comes Canopus at minus 
0.72 magnitude, the second brightest star in the sky. Well, at least for the next few thousand years. Eventually, it will be the brightest star in the sky. Canopus is not in the white band of the Milky Way. Standing tall, Canopus is high in the sky as it likes to be at this time of the year after sunset. Canopus is a circumpolar star from Wellington, which means that it goes around in circles in 23 hours and 56 minutes, riding something that is like a celestial ferris wheel of the southern skies. A giant wheel that never stops, with the south celestial pole at the centre and a bunch of other stars that look like a circle. On the ferris wheel, another bunch of stars is Crooks, or the Southern Cross. It's no stranger to the Northern Hemisphere, and it was entirely visible as far north as Britain in the 4th millennium BC. The Greeks could see it too, but since then the precession of the equinoxes, the wobble of Earth, this gyroscopic dance on the orbit has changed the sky a lot. So now Crooks is only visible in the Northern Hemisphere from as far south as 25 degrees latitude north. Florida Keys, Puerto Rico, the islands of the Caribbean, as well as Hawaii, are its northern limit of visibility. Near the Southern Cross, there is a dark patch of dust that masks the light that comes from the stars behind it, and that is known as the Cossack, or the Flounder here. Maori call it the Flounder, the Patiki. Inside the Cossack, the jewel box is one of my favorite sites that I visit over and over and over with the telescope. And there's nothing like looking through at the jewel box by looking looking through the antique telescope at Carter Observatory, the giant Thomas Cook nine and three quarter inch refractor. And you can see the colours. It looks amazing. Lower down on the path of the Milky Way, the two pointers look now as if they're hanging from the Southern Cross. First comes Beta Centauri, the genitive for Centaurus, the name of the constellation. Then the famous Alpha Centauri. Our closest neighbour that we can see. Easily. With the naked eye. Without a telescope. Because, of course, there is Proxima Centauri. A little bit closer. But a whole lot smaller and nowhere near as bright. Because it's a red dwarf. Yeah. So, the binocular objects for April. Uh, there's quite a few. A few good ones. Of course, it's not all of them, but it is a nice uh, selection of objects that you can check out in the southern sky. And a lot of these objects will, be, of course, be familiar to northern sky viewers, but there's some real gems for the southern sky. But anyway, M44, the beehive cluster... And right there in the middle of Cancer is a great cluster to have a look at, especially in a pair of binoculars. M42 in Orion, a classic. Always looks great no matter what you look at. Tarantula Nebula, right there in the large Magellanic Cloud. Eta Carine. Hanging out just above the Southern Cross in the Milky Way. And of course, Omega Centauri, that massive globular cluster that looks amazing. And in a pair of binoculars, it still looks great. There's actually a competition here in the Southern Hemisphere between Omega Centauri and 47 Tucane, which one is more beautiful. Then, not too far from Eta Nebula is the Southern Pleiades, a lovely big cluster that looks fantastic in binoculars. And, of course, the Jewel Box, which we just talked about. And then there is this galaxy, Centaurus A, that if you try really, really hard, you can just see the band, the dark band in the center. And that's what gives it its name, the Hamburger Galaxy, because it sort of kind of looks like a hamburger. And then the classical Alpha Centauri star. Alpha Centauri is actually a double star. If you look at it in a pair of binoculars, you can see the two of them together. Very pretty. I don't know if you can separate them in a pair of binoculars, but you definitely can with the Thomas Cook telescope at Carl. It looks fantastic. Telescope objects for April. Nice and high in the sky in the Southern Hemisphere. 
is of course the fantastic spiral galaxy known as the Southern Pinwheel or M83. Sombrero Galaxy M104. M68, which is a really lovely globular cluster. And of course, this is where we can also see some of those northern sky delights, like the Leo triplet. And sure, it's three galaxies, so it's pretty faint, but um, with a bit of averted vision and a good-sized telescope, you should be able to see those. And of course, Scorpius is coming up, so M80, M4, and M7, here we come. And because this is 2019, and we also have some planets going and coming through the skies, we thought we were going to talk a little bit about them as well. Because the good news for April is the planets are coming back. Yay. Not that they you know, actually went anywhere, but they're coming back to the southern sky. So I don't have to wake up in the morning to have a look at the planets. We do this month for a few. Of course, not all of them are coming back, and nothing like last year, but still in the spectacular glory that we've become used to. For those who live on the mountaintops, with a nice clear view of the southeastern horizon, you'll see Jupiter rise just before 11pm at the start of the month, and by the end of the month, Jupiter will be starting to appear around 8pm. Of course, to actually get a reasonable view of Jupiter, you're going to need to wait a couple of hours until it rises, which is still a quite reasonable time by the end of the month. Jupiter is exceptionally easy to find, because it's right there in the middle of that very famous object, Milky Way Kiwi, which of course, I'm sure you all know where it is. Quite close to the galactic centre, just between Scorpius and Sagittarius, if you're not quite sure where Milky Way Kiwi is. Jupiter is huge and bright with a magnitude of minus 2.2 and this is because it really is huge with a diameter of 142,984,000 kilometers, just over 11 Earth's diameters. Its huge distance from us of around 750 million kilometers means that even this massive planet won't outshine Venus as minus 4 magnitude. Jupiter is a great sight in binoculars as the Galilean moons are clearly visible depending on their positions. Of course, also coming up in the night sky is Saturn, which is about two hours behind Jupiter in the march along the ecliptic. So it's very much an early morning planet for most of the month, before being visible at a good altitude by midnight at the end of the month. Saturn is a bit further away from the Milky Way between Sagittarius and Capricornus. Of course, by a bit further away, we mean the angular distance. In distance terms from Earth, it is 1.449 billion kilometers, with an angular dimension of about 17.1 arc seconds, so pretty small. The distance doesn't change much during the month, only about 70 million kilometers. Saturn's crowning jewel is its rings, which look fantastic. I think every astronomer that I have ever spoken to can remember the first time they saw Saturn. But also, I remember every person who came at the observatory looked through the Thomas Cook telescope and what they said when they first saw Saturn with wow. their eyes. Yes. Of course, to see the rings of Saturn, you need to have a telescope or be about 1.1 billion kilometers closer to the gas giant. Can we do that? Well, if you have a rocket, I suppose. Anyway, clearly it's not that easy to be 1.1 billion kilometres closer. So let's think about why we can't see them with the naked eye. The human eye has a range of angular resolution of between 1 and 4 arc minutes. So it's not quite a large aperture telescope. Depending on the eye, of course, and atmospheric conditions, and that's why the range is between 1 and 4. Some of us have good eyes and other of us, well, the eyes are getting a bit old. The size of Saturn's rings are about 46 arc seconds when they are at their absolute biggest, so significantly smaller 
than what the best human eye in the best conditions can resolve. So the best you can see of satin with the naked eye is its beautiful golden colour. So and you're saying that so you're saying that the people who look at Saturn can't even see its ears? No, it's impossible to see the rings of Saturn with the human eye. It's just not big enough. Sure, if the human eye had a much larger aperture of, say, a few inches, that would be a different story, but then we'd all look a bit funny, wouldn't we? Yeah, like night owls. Yeah. But we are night owls. Well, yeah, astronomers are. <laughs> Mars. What's happening to Mars? Well, unfortunately, Mars doesn't do much during the month, other than skirt along across Taurus to Gemini. And given it's now 344 million kilometres away, and only about 4.1 arc seconds in diameter, it's not going to be much to look at anyway. In New Zealand, we also miss out on a conjunction of Venus and Neptune on the 10th of April, when the two planets get to within 18 arc minutes of each other. At the same time, Venus and Mercury get very close as well, at about 5 degrees apart. Northern Hemisphere observers will have to get up early and have a really good view of the horizon to see it. Maybe you could send us a picture. The Moon. The Moon is new on the 5th of April and full on 19th of April. It's still quite close to the Earth during the full Moon at about 368,000 kilometers. Not quite the overhyped supermoon that gets people excited but not so far off it. No, it's not the supermoon, blood wolf, banana moon or whatever it's called. Banana moon, I like that. Yeah, through the tropical dimension. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening to us for April 2019 Night Sky from here from Carter Observatory, Space Place at Carter Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. We wish you clear skies and good night. Happy viewing. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. I'm Sam Liski. And you've listened to Galactic Conversations. Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. And now, on to the feedback. We've had some feedback from our March update. Teresa Risp um, wrote in saying, Thank, Sounds like you've all been really busy. No worries. Life stuff is more important. Congratulations on your first paper. Uh, that's in reference to Jake Stabick Morgan's first paper. Uh, and I hope those who are ill are feeling better. And I'm excited for uh, April Fool's. Those episodes are always hilarious. Um, I'm sure we all agree. Thanks thanks a lot for that, uh, Teresa. And Christopher Kirkland sent a message in saying, hope you're feeling better soon. Congratulations on your paper. And yes, Jake is very grateful for all these lovely people writing in and asking if he's all right. Thank you. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net or at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Or you can get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. We have a YouTube account at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Or you can reach us at flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Matt Smith for the interview. The editors for the show were Jake Stabberg Morgan, Beth Jones, Lizzie Lee and Tom Scragg. And the producer was Jake Stabberg Morgan. Until next time, Jod on! on.